Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. So I'm very excited about this next guest, Dr. Tony Mealy. He came to our agency at Novus to do a training on motivational interviewing. And what was great about it is that he was really able to go in depth and look at not just what motivational interviewing is, but how it works with the brain to create change. And so I was excited to ask him to be part of this podcast. And I approached him and I said, hey, would you be willing to do this? And uh, I was very excited that he said yes. So here he is. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a great guest today, Dr. Tony Mealy. Uh, He's the Chief Clinical Officer at Sovereign Health, and the reason I have him here today is that he came to our agency and did an incredible training on motivational interviewing and why you'd want to use that at a treatment agency, and I thought, you know, I would love to have Tony here to talk about that and share that knowledge and how they use that at Sovereign Health and in their treatment center. So um, welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. It's great to be here. Definitely, uh, I really appreciated our time together a couple of weeks ago with your staff, so uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Oh, yeah, it was great, and it was such a great presentation. So I thought thought our audience would really love to kind of hear about this. Um, We hear about motivational interviewing all the time, you know, as therapists. um, We hear about it, people talk about it, but I don't think a lot of people who maybe are looking for treatment or seeking treatment or have been in treatment... Uh, know what that is or why we even use motivational interviewing in a treatment setting. So can you kind of give us a little bit of uh, information about what is motivational interviewing? And Sure, sure. Um, I think you're correct. Pretty much everyone right now has kind of jumped on the, the motivational interviewing bandwagon. It is, uh, it is definitely a well-regarded, uh, fairly well-researched uh, intervention for folks who have uh, addiction. So as a result, many therapists have you know, received some training or at least have a rudimentary understanding of, uh, of motivational interviewing. For, for shorthand, I'll, I'll occasionally refer to it simply as MI. So motivational interviewing is actually uh, a technique. Um, I tell my, my staff it, it's not the entire therapy. It's, it's really a technique that a therapist can use, the goal of which is to bring forth 
the ambivalence that a person with an addiction has towards resolving that addiction. I, I think the thing that, that we have to understand, or we often do understand, is that an addiction, uh, while it is definitely a brain-based disease, is also serving some kind of a psychological function. In the old days, we were so probably... when you're kind of, so when you're kind of saying ambivalence, like so the person who comes in, maybe they kind of know they have a problem, but they don't really want to do anything about it. Which is a lot of people struggle with addiction. I think kind of they know that there's an issue there, but maybe they don't want to take action. Is that kind of what you're talking about? I, I think it's. I think that's part of it. I think when you when you work with a person who has an addiction, um, and you ask them what would life be like without the addiction. You know, they'll go into, oftentimes, they'll go into the loss, you know? Right, yeah, definitely. The the addiction is clearly serving a purpose. Um, You know, you talk with a fellow who says he loves his wife or a woman who says she loves her husband, and then you ask, well, how do you spend your week? And they say, five nights a week, I'm in a bar. Right. And so, well, how does that jive with loving your spouse? You're spending most of your time away from your spouse. So I think the ambivalence is not only the denial or minimizing of the problem, it's, okay, what am I going to lose if I give up the casino, if I give up the pornography? Right, right. You know? Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's you know? a great way to look at it and, and really see that. And it starts to bring in that, almost that contradiction. Absolutely. And, and that's what um, the task of motivational interviewing is. It's to help the individual see that there, that there is this conflict. Part of you wants to give it up, but part of you also is invested in it, and it's serving this, this purpose. You know, I, I'm sure in your practice you, you've asked, uh, say, a person who has a, uh, a substance use disorder, you know, you ask them, uh, wow, do you really like waking up every morning with a needle in your neck? Is, is that your goal? And they'll say no, but you'll and you'll say, well, what is it that you like about that? And they'll give you all the physiologic, you know, um, you know, positives about it. So there's the ambivalence, you know, right, right there. Right. You know? And so they're able to start to see that. So if a, a therapist or a treatment center is using this, they're going to start to kind of introduce this language. Yeah. Would you say it's kind of a language technique or? or a way of asking these questions that help people move forward? Is, would that be a way to define it? Or I, I, think, I think that's a good way of putting it. It, it really is a language. Uh, it, it is helping, you know, MI is a way of helping the patient, um, the client start to look at their own behavior a little bit differently. You're trying to, uh, when you're using it, you're asking questions that start to uh, break up how they're conceptualizing the addiction. So you say to them, geez, um, you know, you tell me you love your wife, yet you're in a bar five nights a week. Let, let's talk about, there seems to be some kind of inconsistency there. Let's, let's right. tell, tell me about both. Tell me about how you love your wife. Boom, boom, boom. Tell me how the addiction, the, the, the bar is meeting your needs. You know, so you're really bringing these, these contradictions you know, to the forefront. At some point in motivational interviewing, you wind up, uh, as a therapist, you wind up facing cognitive dissonance. 
define that, that for people. Yeah, which is people just, hear that, yeah. and, and that's like one of those uh, terms that a lot of people won't know what cognitive yeah, dissonance cognitive is. Cognitive dissonance is really the um, challenge of holding two opposing, you know, uh, experiences, feelings, viewpoints um, at the same time. And, it, and most of us don't like it. It's not a very comfortable place to be. You know, in relationships, it's, it's kind of the love-hate in a relationship. I love my wife. I hate my wife. I love my husband. Hate my husband. You know, um, so, so you, want to, you want that dissonance to come up in therapy. You, you really do. Because if you don't get dissonance, then you're going to maintain the addiction. Right. You so, want that, them, so that discomfort starts you, to kind of create... The motivation. Absolutely. And, and that's the perfect word, discomfort. You want them to feel discomfort, you know? Absolutely. And that starts to move them. Then they have to really start to make a decision of what they want. It becomes almost sounds like it becomes clear to them. Well, and, and part of the motivational interviewing is working with them in the decision-making process. Because if you have an individual who has a long history of addictive behavior, their brain is now firing and their brain is now wired in a certain direction. So they're used to following a certain pathway. So they now equate, one of the things that we know in the brain is the link between the, the emotional center, we often call it the amygdala, and the memory center, which we often call the hippocampus, they're very closely related in the brain, uh, you know, positioned. They're very close. So often our feelings and our memory become consolidated. I have a feeling and I remember it. Right, right. right. Okay. And that's what happens with an addiction. You know, the, the addiction produces a, a positive feeling. People typically aren't addicted to things that don't feel good. Right. You know, right, so exactly. this feels good. I remember that feeling. I go back to that behavior. Right. Okay. So, Yeah. So yeah. what, what we're trying to do is get folks to start to think differently. So if I have 12 years of addictive behavior, and that's what I know. Now as a therapist, you know, my therapist says to me, well, geez, Tony, why don't you start to think about what it would be like for you to not go to the bar every night? What would you do instead? Right, and then they can start to start to formulate that plan. So just just to start to think differently about it. And, and yeah, and, and and say to them, uh, you know, what I would say somewhat paradoxically, I would say, wow, you would you would go home five nights a week and you know just watch you know the Anaheim Ducks on TV or just you know mow the lawn. That doesn't sound like much fun. And, you know, and you kind of try to get right. them to really, well, refute that. Yes, it is. It's better than, you know, coming home drunk every night. You know, so you kind of play around a little bit with So that. tell me a little bit of how is this, I would say, like, how is this different from old school treatment? You know, where, you know, when we looked at uh, treatment before, before kind of the, using this way of treatment, I think there was kind of an older school. Can you kind of share how you would see the difference? Like... I, for, for, for me, from my, my own training, um, I see motivational interviewing as a way of getting to what we might call insight-oriented talk therapy. You okay. know, I think in the, old, in the older model, it was much more uh, the therapist asking a lot of questions. You know, tell me more about that, why that, trying to, you know, work through old patterns. This is a little bit more active. It's a little bit more what we, call, what we would call directive. 
Okay. You know, we okay. have a series in, in motivational interviewing. There's a series of, say, anywhere from seven to maybe uh, 10 or 11 steps that you can follow. And they're all little techniques. You know, and the, and the goal is, you know, as I see it, the goal is to, to, as you said earlier, to create some discomfort, to shake up the, uh, the positiveness and the value that's been uh, attributed to the addiction. So the questions, it sounds like with motivational interviewing, the, the questions are very calculated in a yes. way to create that cognitive dissonance, that discomfort to actively move the client into a new way of thinking about their situation, which hopefully leads to decisions to make some kind of behavior change. Is that? Absolutely. And I I think that therein lies a big challenge for a lot of our clients when we say to them, uh, what would life be like without this addiction? Right. Literally, what would you do instead? And... One of the things we know in the brain, and I'm just going to use this, this uh, kind of these numbers. Let's just pretend that walking on the beach with your spouse produces one X of dopamine, the pleasure, right. the pleasure transmitter. Let's pretend that um, having sex with your spouse produces five X dopamine. Well, what we know about addictive behavior, particularly certain substances like, say, cocaine, that produces a thousand X right. of dopamine. How do you compete with so that? So how do you compete with that? Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, you sex know? isn't even going to compete with that. Yeah, not, you know, food. You know, right. all, the, all the, the, you know, the basic needs that, that are supposed to derive, we, we derive uh, pleasure and, and you know, uh, life from, don't compete. With, right. with some of these drugs. That's why you often will hear that the substances have hijacked the brain and they literally have. They've taken over. They've taken over that process. I yeah. mean, if you're getting that thousand times dopamine and it, it feels amazing and you feel amazing and you, yeah. you feel, uh, you know, for some people they report they feel complete, they feel powerful, they feel mm-hmm. strong, they feel assertive, all the other feelings that when they're not on it, they're feeling Exactly. So then the challenge is, is how do you start to create that with ordinary right. thing? Well, ordinary. I mean, I guess we, I don't know if we call sex ordinary, but I guess that is ordinary. You know, how do we create it with yeah. things that we're just supposed to get pleasure from, yeah. everyday things? How do we do that? Right. So that's the right. challenge, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, telling a person with an addiction, hey, you're right. Life is fairly boring. Yeah. Every night's not New Year's Eve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. the most of us. Do we just kind of, you know, get through and try to have a decent time and we're not chasing the high? Yeah. And that's what you would, you know, oftentimes with a, an opioid addict or, or a, a person who has a, a, a meth amphetamine addict, you'll ask them, what do you do after you shoot up and get that high? Invariably, they'll tell you they start to figure out where their next one's coming from. Right. You know, it's not like they're doing that and then going to work. Most are not, you know, or barely functioning, but they're that chasing also, that next one. Yeah, that also leads to that. You know, I also think about, you know, that relapse scenario because, you know, it takes a while for the brain to heal, right? Mm-hmm. I think I heard somewhere, and I don't know to quote this is accurate or not, but, you know, like two years at least yeah. for the brain to start to readapt to not having that substance in it. So you've got these two years of... Mm-hmm. 1x dopamine you know or 2x dopamine and you know i think that's where a lot of people fall into that relapse so i guess with motivational interviewing to kind of bring it back to that you really got to create that 
cognitive dissonance with them to really make them really want to yeah. get clean and sober yeah. and you, what, you know what you're doing with the with the with the MI technique is the assumption is that there is some level of ambivalence in this addiction there's a recognition that the addiction is serving a purpose that it is bringing positive uh, brain uh, effects because it does um, and there's also the assumption that most folks uh, do not want to be controlled by this addiction, don't like the negative right. effects of the addiction. So there are some assumptions that, that we work with. And I, the, the other component to motivational interviewing is there's a fair amount of cognitive skill that is required to right. effectively okay. use it on the part of the patient. And, you know, I, I've kind of said this a couple of times. I think the biggest challenge I find is having uh, the patient, the client, vision a, vision a life without it. It takes a lot to do that. Right. You've got to see an alternative. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, depending on how long they've been in their addiction, how entrenched their addiction is yeah. for them, it becomes, uh, I'd imagine it becomes even harder as the more yeah. they're entrenched in that. Sure, because it, again, it's, a, it's a, a brain pathway that's been created, you know? So right. I, I go home, I, I leave work, and instead of going to the gym or going home, I go to the bar or I go to the casino or I go to the strip joint, you know? Right. Yeah. What would be, can you give some, because um, I think it's hard if people haven't seen motivational interviewing in action, it's kind of hard to see these kind of questions kind of take place. Can you give some examples? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here to like give you like what would be some, how might you ask a question? What would be a motivational interviewing question? If I was here struggling with addiction, let's say, mm -hmm. what might you say to me or? I, I would, uh, after we did the, the basic introductions and you know, why are you here? What brings you in today? Um, I would ask a person, well, tell me um, about your, addictive behavior. Describe it for me. And I would ask them, uh, I would probably say something like, wow, uh, it sounds like you're getting a, uh, a lot of pleasure from this behavior. Um, are there any negative effects of this? Is there anything you don't right. like about this behavior? Right. Well, it, it takes a lot of, a lot of my yeah. time. Yeah. You know, I'm spending so much time on the computer uh, looking at pornography all day long. I'm not getting my work done. Wow. What what would you be doing if you weren't looking at porn on on the uh, computer? Oh, I'd probably be you know I you know I probably get that promotion or I I'd, I'd probably get my work done. I wouldn't get yelled at by my boss probably because I would have got that whatever done right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you compare getting yelled at by your boss versus the pleasure of the porn. How is it that you're making the decision to stay with the porn? That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. I can almost, as you're doing this example, I can feel the cognitive dissonance in me just trying to, even though we're role playing, yeah. trying to like hear that. I can see like, how would it, yeah, I don't know. You know, that makes me really think. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's a great example. You know, but you're getting something out of it, right? Right. And I think in, as a therapist, you know, even if we go back to, you know, uh, the Rogerian model, Carl Rogers, and certainly Marsha Linehan in, in dialectical behavioral therapy, our task is 
not to judge that behavior. It's to really appreciate that maybe it's something we don't agree with, but we understand how a person can go in that direction. We can understand somehow there's a physiologic, we would say neurologic, there's a reason for this behavior occurring. And so we don't sit in judgment. We just try to help the person understand that, wait a minute, this isn't as comfortable as you're making it sound. Right, right. This is somewhat upsetting to you. And that seems so, you know, that non you know, motivational interviewing and, and like you said, DBT and the Rogerian, it really uh, makes people feel a lot safer. Because uh, I think they're already judging them. They, yeah. There's a part of them that are, they already know. They wouldn't be in any kind of, they wouldn't be sitting in front of a therapist if they didn't think anything was wrong. Or they wouldn't be in a treatment center if they, unless mm-hmm. maybe they're mandated or something. But, you know, most of the time they know, they already feel that shame yeah. and that, and to kind of begin to explore this, you got to be willing to, they got to be feel comfortable enough because it's pretty vulnerable to yeah. start to look at yourself and look at the contradictions in your Absolutely. life. Well, you know, you know, I think it's a, um, you know, in, in addiction recovery work, we often say that the client is fairly compartmentalized. They have their, what they might say, their real self, and then they have their addictive behavior self. And I think what motivational interviewing does is it removes the silo. And it says, you know what? No, you're not the good self and the bad self. You're the self. This is all right. you. Right. Now let's try to make some cohesion out of all this. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I, I've worked with folks who have had, um, you know, a sexual addiction. And when I, when I would ask them, you know, tell me about what it's like when you, when you go in. And I've had folks, you know, fellows usually say, well, first thing I do is I, I take off my work clothes. You know, I take off my blazer. I take off my tie. Um, sometimes I leave my shirt on or, you know, but I, I really become an, another person. Yeah. You know, there's a new persona and we'll, we'll talk about, well, no, there, there's only you. Right. Right. It, yeah. It's you that's going into that. Now let's, let's talk about, you know, and then you, you, you kind of spin out on that. Right. And you say, well, you know, we know certain personality disorders have the poorly defined sense of self. And is this what we're, you know, is this what the fellow's experiencing? But Right. Oh, definitely. This is, I mean, I think we could talk for a really long time about this and this is such great information. Um, I mean, I think it just, as we look at addiction treatment, um, being able to approach um, any of these people, I mean, you know, any of these people who struggle with addiction, they are truly suffering Mm -hmm. and to be able to help them in any way we can, I think it's just awesome. So it's wonderful to have you here. How can people get a hold of you if they want to know more about you and Sovereign Health and, and your programs? How, they, how can they get a, get a hold of you? But the easiest thing is to Google us on SovHealth.com. And they can find yeah. all the information. Yep, yeah. yeah. they can uh, check us out. Um, absolutely. Well, thank yeah. you, Tony. Thank, thank you, you so Dwayne. much for being here. This My is, pleasure. This is awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was... Uh, Dr. Tony Mealy and uh, at Solve Health, I encourage you, if any of you are struggling with addiction, to seek out their treatment center. These guys are amazing, and they really, their mission is to just bring unparalleled treatment to the patient. You know, they really want to help people who are struggling. So uh, reach out to them. This information will also be on our website, theaddictedmind.com. You can go there, and we'll have all the show notes there so you can get any information there as well. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. Please support us by going to iTunes 
and leaving us a review. Every little bit helps. Also, if you'd like to support us directly, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the addicted mind. There you can support us directly and help offset the cost of producing this podcast and help us get this information to everybody who needs it. So take care, have a wonderful day, and I'll see you next week. Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-to for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.